You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 85. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today, we are once again delving into the Wild Lens interview archives to bring you a conversation that I had with Dr. Mark Pokross back in 2011. This interview was recorded for our documentary, Scavenger Hunt, about California condor recovery and the issue of lead poisoning in wildlife. Dr. Pokross is a veterinarian and a professor at the Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. He has been studying the impacts of lead poisoning on wildlife for close to 30 years now and is well known for his research on loon populations in the northeastern U.S. and the dramatic impact that lead fishing sinkers have had on this species. Dr. Pokross was a central character in our film Scavenger Hunt, and over the course of putting this film together, he played a crucial role in not just the development of the story, but in organizing screenings and marketing the film to audiences in the Northeast. When I would come across a question related to lead poisoning wildlife, Mark is often the first person that I would turn to for advice. So I am extremely grateful to Mark for everything that he has done for our project and for his continued dedication to the larger issue of lead poisoning in wildlife. I'm extremely happy to present to you here on the show that first conversation that I had with Mark back in 2011. I'm Mark Pokras. I'm a veterinarian. I teach here at Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at the Wildlife Clinic. Uh, how did you become interested in veterinary medicine? I'm one of those kids who grew, out in the, grew up out in the woods. You know, I was always much more interested in going out and catching frogs and snakes and things like that. And I grew up hunting and fishing, mm-hmm. you know, in a rural community. Um, I grew up partly here in the Northeast, partly in Latin America. Um, and did a lot of hunting and fishing and hiking and snorkeling and scuba diving and things down there. And veterinary medicine is actually sort of sort of late for me. I was uh, a field biologist and a marine biologist first, and then when I looked at graduate work, I went back to veterinary school because I'd become interested. Uh, Some of the first field work I did was in the tail end of the DDT era, and so I worked a lot on DDT problems in osprey in particular. And that got me interested in contaminants and health issues, and that directly or indirectly headed me towards veterinary school. But uh, I was uh, I was out of school basically ten years between undergraduate and graduate work, working working as a a field biologist and ornithologist. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, do you see similarities in what's going on now with with this lead and ammunition issue and how it's being dealt with and how uh, issues with DDT were. We're sort of. Uh... I think a lot of the yes, there are a lot of parallels um, in terms of having to make sure your science is good. In terms of some of the arguments for needing to show population level effects rather than having just a few animals die from this. Um, it's interesting to me though that with many other environmental contaminant issues and DDT, PCBs, uh, modern days with BPA and things mm-hmm. like that. There's been a relatively short time lag between when we found environmental problems and when we've decided to uh, impose really stringent regulation on them. Lead is the exception to that. 
Um, lead is the exception, and I'm not exactly sure, you know, sociologically or economically why this is the case, but we've clung to working with lead for much, much longer than most of other the, the, these, you know, serious tox- environmental toxic sorts of things. And I think part of it, and, and certainly you're dealing with the, with the condor issues, is that there's a strong advocacy group for, for lead, for continuing to use lead. And for most of these other things, other than you know, a few narrow in- industries that manufactured DDT or things, there's not strong public support for continuing to use toxic materials, but there is for lead. Right. Mm-hmm. right. How did you get involved in, in this, this program that connects... Um, wildlife conservation and, and veterinary medicine. I mean, how, how did you get involved in that, and how did you find a way to connect these two interests? Well, it, it's an interesting sort of an evolution. Um, you know, I came into veterinary medicine wanting to work on environmental issues, environmental health issues, because that was my background. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many people, I think, who get into veterinary medicine and want to work with non-domestic animals tend to work in zoos or in a more clinical setting. But, and I'm interested in the clinical stuff. You know, we run a wildlife clinic here. But um, I'm also interested in connecting what's going on clinically with the animals coming into the larger environmental picture and what we can learn from the animals coming into the clinic, whether they're loons or bald eagles or Canada geese or robins, that might give us a, a greater insight into larger environmental issues. So we work on toxic issues. We work on infectious disease issues, climate change issues, a lot of sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it's interesting, Tufts uh, is one of the newer veterinary schools in the U.S. We opened in 1979. And even at the very outset, the people who started Tufts had the idea that they wanted it to be different. They wanted it to not just look at traditional career options for veterinarians, but they wanted to look at where might the opportunities be in the future? What are some of the novel things for veterinarians to get involved with? So we started our wildlife program here in 1983, you know, when the school was just a couple of years old. That same year, we started a program in international veterinary medicine. Uh, it's still, you know, probably the best in the world. And it was really a set of discussions among the faculty and students here, students and faculty in the international program and the wildlife program, about what we were seeing in our work, the interfaces between health problems in domestic animals and wildlife, and the interfaces in health problems between domestic animals and humans, or wildlife and humans. And we, we actually got a small grant back in 1996 to look at that interface to look at the commonalities between domestic animal health, human health, and wildlife health. Mm -hmm. And out of that came our program in conservation medicine, realizing that there are huge health linkages. And if we're looking at anything that has an environmental um, source or an environmental uh, contributor, whether it's, again, toxics or climate change or emerging disease, you can't look at any one group of animals in isolation. You know, if we were studying... um, Ebola virus in humans, or if we're studying HIV in humans, or if we're studying West Nile virus, and we were egotistical enough to think that it was just a human problem, we'd miss 90% of the iceberg, you know, because so much of what's going on is the disease circulating in wildlife populations and domestic animal populations and only occasionally coming up in human populations. And to understand these larger health issues, we really have to look at the commonalities that link all these species. And it's one of the wonderful things, I was just talking to the veterinary students this morning, is it reinforces everything that they've learned about comparative biology and evolution and everything else. I mean, there are not, 
vast quantitative differences between human biology and cow biology and dog biology and bald eagle biology. You know, they're basically variations on a theme. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all vertebrates. Mm -hmm. And vertebrates are built in a certain kind of a way. Um, and I think this broad approach and broad thinking to health issues is a, it's a novel and probably very important way to look at all these kinds of things. So when did you start doing research on lead toxicity in animals? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, it was never my initial focus or something that we started to get into. I mean, we have always, since the first day, wasn't the first day, it was probably the third day that the clinic opened, have seen lead poisoning in wildlife. Um, it's fairly common, you know, sort of low-level background stuff. We probably see three to five lead poisoning cases a week in various species coming here into the wildlife clinic. And it's not all the big sexy things. It's not all bald eagles and loons. It's red-tailed hawks, it's blue jays, it's gray squirrels, Canada geese, mute swans, you know, a, a wide variety of different vertebrate species coming in with clinical lead poisoning. And... You know, when I went to veterinary school and took toxicology courses, you learned what I think most people know, which is, oh yeah, lead used to be a big problem, but mostly we've taken care of it. You know, we've gotten lead out of most, but not all forms of gasoline. We've gotten lead out of some paints, not all paints. We've gotten lead out of some solders, but not all solders. And you get the feeling that it's a problem of the past more than a problem of the present. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until, it was 1987, it was uh, probably about this time of the year, and a biologist from New Hampshire, Betsy McCoy, brought me down a dead loon that they'd found on the shores of, of Squam Lake, I think. And she said, can you tell us why the bird died? And I said, well, I'm always willing to take a look and give it a shot. And we opened it up, and we found a big lead fishing sinker. And uh, there was basically no literature on lead poisoning from ingested fishing gear at that point. And I, I, I made a... Uh, one of those off-the-cuff statements that really has shaped the rest of my life <laughs> because I said to Betsy, gee, this is interesting. If you ever find another one, give me a call. Well, we were just approaching our 2,000th loon at this point. Um, so we have seen an awful lot of um, death and destruction mm -hmm. in loon populations. And so one thing led to another. Um, you know, we, we saw this first loon that had died from lead poisoning. And they started to bring us other ones, and we realized that lead poisoning wasn't a, you know, a once accident, that it really was happening on a more regular basis. And it, sort of the nature of research and the nature of academia is, you know, you, you flip up one rock and you, you, you start answering more and more questions, and you, you come up with more questions. Mm -hmm. And so we started thinking, well, what are all the factors that contribute to the mortality of loon populations? And we looked at infectious disease, we looked at boat hits, we looked at gunshot, we looked at entanglement in monofilament fishing line, infectious disease, parasites, a whole variety of different kinds of things, asking the broader question, you know, not just lead, but what are all the things that are affecting loon populations? And the thing that kept rising up above all the others was lead poisoning. I mean, lead is killing more loons than all the others put together, which was... and. And that was just such a dramatic finding. I mean, we published our first paper in 1992 on it when we'd seen, what, 125 loons at that point. And people thought we were faking the data. Um, because, you know, what they said is, if it's happening so much, how come nobody's reported it before? Um, and the statistics were too good. You know, it's it, 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 the sort of thing where you didn't really need statistics to prove the point. Um, and... 
the amazing thing is now, you know, we're 25 years, 24 years further down, we've increased our number of loons by, you know, thousands at this point, and our statistics are almost identical. Right. Um, you know, more than half of the mortality of adult common loons is coming from ingesting lead objects. And, and the vast majority of those are from fishing gear. So, uh, you know, we've learned a lot about the biology of common loons. And, and, of course, one of the things that we do, one of our approaches is to collaborate as much as possible with other groups in the field. You know, we are a veterinary school. Our purpose is to educate students on veterinary medicine and all this sort of thing. I'm not anymore a field biologist. You know, I don't go up to, on the lakes of New Hampshire and ban loons. I do sometimes, but that's, that's not my core thing. Mm -hmm. But we collaborate as much as possible with oh, at this point, 30 or 40 different agencies and academic groups on a large-scale um, regional loon study. It's called NELSWIG, the Northeast Loon Study Working Group. We have, we have about 60 biologists now from all the eastern provinces of Canada, all the six New England states and New York. And we get together once a year. Um, we meet alternately either here or at the Loon Preservation Committee, meeting, um, Loon Preservation Committee headquarters in Moultonboro, New Hampshire. And we plan all the research on loons for the coming year. So we met in March um, in New Hampshire this year, and we had about 40-something biologists there. And we plan, you know, who's going to do the toxicology, who's going to do the disease work, who's going to do the banding, who gets the blood samples, how are we going to share the data, all these. So it's become a large regional collaborative effort, and it's fantastic. It really has yielded a lot of great science that I think has helped, you know, in terms of uh, public education in terms of managing loon populations in terms of coming up with new ideas for how do we protect this particular species and again uh, this one we're focused on lead poisoning but uh, of course lead poisoning crosses the barrier we probably do almost as much on bald eagles um, we do necropsies on many of the bald eagles that die in New England we can collaborate with a lot of the state agencies we see a lot of lead poisoning in bald eagles but that's not unique to our region. You know, as you know from the West, there are people working on bald eagles and lead poisoning all across the United States. Um, and, and of course, their relatives. I mean, uh, sea eagles in Japan and eagles in Scandinavia. And every place you have eagles, you have lead poisoning problems. So it, it's a huge issue. Yeah. And I think um, you know, one of the things that I, has always interested me about this lead thing both from a regulatory point of view and from a science point of view, is the tendency for people to isolate the different interest groups. I mean, when we started working on this, the people who worked on aquatic birds, like loons, had no idea that there were raptor biologists who were seeing this in raptors. Mm -hmm. And the raptor biologists weren't talking to the human physicians mm -hmm. and the and they weren't talking to the cattle veterinarians who very often see lead poisoning in dairy cattle and you know so it's like the five blind men and the elephants everybody's seeing a little isolated piece of the problem but nobody's right. putting it together right. and i think that was one of the magic pieces about the boise conference you know when when we first started talking about getting this meeting together sponsored by the peregrine fund and meeting in boise you know rick watson was was uh, innovative and broad-minded enough that he thought this would be a great meeting to do that, to try and get all these different groups together and begin to develop synergies among the different groups who are seeing different tips of the iceberg. Yeah. And to me, as a veterinarian, 
and I joke sometimes with this, you know, uh, the best experimental species we have for lead poisoning is people. Um, we are the guinea pigs on this one. We were back in the early part of the 1900s when Alice Hamilton was working on the project, and we still are today. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the subtlety of our ability to measure the effects of lead poisoning. You know, in loons, I'm measuring it in dead birds or birds that are coming in severely sick. Um, the same thing is true with California condors or bald eagles. In humans, at least in the U.S., we don't see many mortalities from lead poisoning in people anymore. You know, that was true in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, but mostly we see subclinical stuff. And so in the human literature, we know a lot about heart disease and kidney disease and effects on aging and effects on women's health, particularly postmenopausal women, or the developing brain in, in neonates, pediatric medicine, we know a tremendous amount about low-level lead poisoning in humans that I think we can extrapolate to other animal species mm -hmm. and begin to ask, okay, well, what about the bald eagles and the condors and the loons that didn't die mm -hmm. but might have low-level effects? What should we be looking for? Mm -hmm. And certainly one of the things that I think we're documenting quite well in loons and in bald eagles is they're predisposed to traumatic events. You know, if they've got low levels of lead, they may not be dying from it, but they're getting hit by cars more. They're, yeah. getting, it, they're getting caught by predators more yeah. because they're impaired. Yeah. Um, and I think getting at that and getting that into the literature and convincing the regulatory agencies that we really need to do something about this is a really important step. Yeah, yeah someone was talking to me about a study recently that uh, suggests that a certain percentage of power line collisions are indirectly correlated with lead poisoning. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Raptors. Would not be a bit... I, I don't know it to be a fact. Yeah. But certainly in terms of loons and bald eagles running into stationary objects, yeah. I know for certain that, uh, you know, more than a few of those animals have elevated lead levels. Yeah. Um, which makes me, you know, it gives me concerns about wind projects mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and some of these other kinds of things that are being Yeah, proposed. I mean, that's, you know... Uh, uh, for me too, you know, like the, the wind energy thing is huge, and it's like, why are these collisions, you know, uh, are turbines just bad for raptors and other mm -hmm. birds, or is there something else going on there, you know yeah. what I mean? If you eliminate lead from the environment, then is it, does it then become safe to throw up wind turbines? I mean, probably not. Uh, I mean, probably not, at least, in, and I think a lot of it is going to be... A lot of multiple factors. Exactly. But, but exactly. if people start thinking about the lead poisoning mm -hmm. issue in relation to that yeah. and take that into, yeah. into uh, consideration... Yeah, and of course it won't be just lead. I mean, yeah. we know environmental mercury has some you know, serious problems in many of these same species, probably not mm -hmm. so much in condors, but bald eagles, certainly. Mm -hmm. You know, and loons, certainly, mm -hmm. and some of these other species. So I think there's a, a whole variety of health issues that are going to tie into that. Yeah, definitely. What about the, the, the bullet fragmentation issue specifically? I mean, do you remember uh, first becoming aware of this issue or seeing one of those x-rays um, for the first time and seeing the extent of fragmentation and how far away fragments were from the bullet path? We've been talking about that for, I mean, as long as I've been interested in wildlife. Um, and I don't know if you know Ward Stone, who's retired from the New York Department of Environmental Conservation, or John Grandy, who works for Humane Society of the United States. These are, you know, they're, they're basically at retirement age at this point. But both of them did their graduate work on lead mm -hmm. in the early 1950s. And it was old news then. Um, 
In fact, one of the things that I sometimes teach is a, I teach a forensic selective and I teach a ballistic selective, and people have known this for a long time. Um, from a veterinary point of view, one of the first cases we had, there's a, a small zoo up in Gray, Maine, that has some non-releasable bald eagles on exhibit there. And we got a call, oh, it's got to be 20 years ago, from the, one of the keepers there, that they came in one morning, one of the bald eagles was lying on the ground twitching, and, you know, if they rushed it down, could, they, could we figure out what was going on? It was dead by the time they got here. But we took an x-ray, and there was this tiny little metal dense sliver in it. Now, these are birds in a cage at a zoo. And most of the time they're fed, you know, lab rodents and things of that nature. But every once in a while, as a treat, you know, the curator would stop and, you know, cut a leg off a roadkill deer or pick up a squirrel or something like that. And he'd done it that week, you know, and we, we dragged the rest of the leg of the deer down here and x-rayed it. And yeah, there were little lead shards all through the muscle. And, and I can tell you from a clinical setting, you know, I mentioned before that we see you know, what, three to five cases of lead poisoning a week here in a variety of species. The other thing we see here, and we probably see at least more than five or more a week, is um, cases that have been shot with lead. I can't tell you how many times a week we'll, it, we'll have an animal come in for something else, and we'll x-ray it, and it will have lead pellets in it from a shotgun. Or very commonly, um, lead um, shot from an air rifle. Um, air rifle pellets, mm -hmm. um, 177s or 22s, right. or tiny little fragments that are probably from a larger firearm. Right. So, you know, in the last month we've had, you know, five or ten gray squirrels come in. Mm -hmm. um, I can't tell you how many Canada geese with air rifle pellets or lead right. pellets in them. I had a, a great blue heron come in that had lead shards in its tissues. Yeah. So there's a lot of animals out there that are being shot and not dying, right. you know, and are being picked up later by scavengers or something. And so I think the exposure risks are huge out there if you include all these things. If we include, yeah. you know, the fact that still in this country, 99.9% .9 of the shot that are manufactured for shotguns are lead. Yeah. Um, or, and, you know, the vast majority of air rifle pellets, I can go down to Walmart and buy them by the, you know, by the pound mm. at this point. They're all, almost all lead, yeah. even some of the match quality ones. Most of the bullets in this country are still lead. All, effectively, all the fishing gear is still lead. Yeah. You know, so there's tens of thousands of tons of this stuff going into the U.S. environment annually. So how about, I mean, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, growing up you, mm -hmm. you were, uh, uh, did some hunting. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you were probably using lead-based ammunition. I was. Sure. I mean, was there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, was there a point where you made that connection? You're like, wow, okay, like. You know, not when I, not at that age. Now, I mean, yeah. I, I stopped hunting. It was probably the last time I hunted was just before I went to college. Okay. And then, you know, I got involved in other things and didn't go back to it. And then, decided later on in life it wasn't something I wanted to keep up. I still fish, mm -hmm. um, but I don't. I haven't hunted in many years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I hunted, I was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Not with a shotgun. I was always lousy with a shotgun. Yeah. But you know, um, but uh, but I think, you know, as with. Granger, as with Chris Parrish, with a lot of these folks who spend a lot of time in the outdoors, when you've done it yourself and you understand something about firearms and ballistics and all these kinds, of, it, it gives you a different sense of you know, what the possibilities are and how common this sort of thing really is mm -hmm. and, and how easy it is to distribute lead fragments out in the environment. I mean, I remember 
This was prior to the federal ban on using lead for waterfowl. I used to live down near Brigantine National Wildlife Refuge in New Jersey. And as with many wildlife refuges, portions of the refuge are open to waterfowl hunting in the fall. And I remember once you know, walking the nature trail, which was near the periphery during the opening days of hunting season, and literally being hit by pellets that had lost velocity that were just sort of falling out of the sky. Um, it's pretty common yeah. <laughs> in a lot of areas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about population level threats. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like you mentioned, you know that it's this issue is similar to the DDT issue, and yeah. that you know it, we're having to prove that there are population level effects. I mean, we've done yeah. that for condors. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, what about eagles? I mean, I've talked to um, I talked to actually to uh, Brian Bedrosian yeah. recently, uh, mm-hmm. um, and you know he he was talking about how. You know, he feels like we're pretty close to being able to say definitively that there are population level threats on golden eagles as a result. Oh, I'm quite sure yeah. that that's the case. Yeah, there's a lot of people working on it. It depends on what you call population level effect. You know, I'm going to use the term effect rather than threat. With condors, there's a threat. You know, if we don't stop using lead, they're going to go extinct. Um, and that may, in fact, be true with golden eagles based on some of the discussions I've had with people with bald eagles. And with loons, I don't think we can say that in the near term. But I think if you look at population modeling, and a bunch of people have done vortex modeling and other population models, we know that the number of birds that's being lost to lead is capping the level of population increase. Um, The state of New Hampshire has particularly good loon data for the last... Oh, 30 plus years on where they literally know how many nests have been and how many chicks have been. They have good individual nest data and they're able to model the population in, in quite a bit of detail. And they have shown that uh, the population is held well below carrying capacity by the number of birds that die every year from lead poisoning. Um, so it, there's clearly a population level effect with loons in the region of the country that I live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it going to cause them to go extinct? Not in the short run. But, you know, when I look at a species like loons, they're, they're interesting from a whole variety of different um, interests. But, you know, as an example, loons don't breed any further south than Massachusetts. Um, you know, if you look at where they breed in North America, it's just, it's just the northern U.S. states and then up into Canada and Alaska. And there, is, there are a lot of people who are starting to study uh, climate change effects on loon populations, we know that they're carrying more blood parasites than they were 20 years ago that are carried by biting flies and things. We know that more of the birds, the loons are getting fungal respiratory diseases than they did 20 years ago, which may be related to warming climates and vegetation decomposition and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. And so lead is one threat that's added to these other threats. And, you know, we we talk when we get together informally as a group of loon biologists. Is it's very easy to imagine this southern margin starting to move further north, where mm-hmm. you know, in 25 or 50 years there may not be loons mm-hmm. breeding in the United States anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, what part in that will lead play? I don't actually know. It's hard, as you said, with multiple factors. It's hard to know how this all adds together. But what we see with loons, and, and I don't think it's quite the same as with condors, is lead poisoning is almost selectively removing breeding adults from the population. Um, Mm. We have virtually no lead ingestion in immature birds. It's very rare. Um, And so it's it's the 
the most fit animals on the breeding lakes that are being selectively removed from the population. And in a, you know, in a case-selected long-lived species like this, that's the last thing you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. We see the, not the exact same thing with condors mm-hmm. because we have exposures with, you know, uh, you know, both first-year birds. Sure. They're just out as well mm-hmm. as older birds. But it's repeated exposures. Yeah. The vast majority of exposures in condors are not lethal. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. we're seeing... Re- I mean, uh, and it's difficult to prove this because, mm-hmm. you know, it's difficult to trap the birds yeah. and the timing of when you trap them. Sounds you don't very know familiar. when the exposure actually happened. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, after having worked with the population, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm 100% positive that every single um, hunting season, you're seeing multiple, each, each bird in the population is seeing multiple exposures. Yeah. Um, and we treat birds, you know, when they're over yeah. a certain blood lead level, <clears throat> but, you know, we don't really know... Which birds were saving and which birds would have recovered from Absolutely. that exposure? Um, but the birds that are dying are um, the birds that are the older, yeah. um, established breeders, mm-hmm. most dominant on a yeah. carcass. They're the first ones to get in there. Yeah. And what's you know, if if they find a gunshot carcass, yeah, they're going. Uh, they're going in the, first, right where the wound is. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So yeah, I mean, we talk. Uh, those uh, on the crew, I mean, we talk about the same thing that you're yeah, talking about, reverse yeah. natural selection. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I think that's probably true of bald eagles as well. We have evidence of multiple exposures in bald eagles. In loons, I don't think it happens. Um, in loons, I think if they're exposed, they die. Um, and, and there's probably multiple reasons for this. One is they're probably ingesting bigger pieces than they do. Mm-hmm. The second one is they never cast pellets. They're incapable of that sort of regurgitating sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we've taken blood samples from, I mean, when I say we, it's the larger group of, you know, us and the field biologists. We've probably taken blood samples from something approaching 5,000 live breeding loons at this point in eastern North America. And two apparently healthy loons had elevated lead levels. Both of them were found dead within 10 days. So, you know, they're not surviving this kind of thing. Yeah. Right. What's your perspective on the, 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 the politics of this and, and what's going on? I mean, you know, there's the voluntary programs yeah. that the Peregrine Fund is doing and that mm-hmm. um, that Beringia South is doing. Sure. Um, and, you know, and then there's Center for Biodiversity saying, you know, I mean, I, I spoke with the lawyer from mm-hmm. Center for Biodiversity yeah. who's uh, uh, suing the EPA right now. Mm-hmm. He says straight up, these voluntary efforts are meaningless. Yeah. I don't think they're meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they'll work by themselves. Um, you know, and I don't have infinite experience and knowledge on this stuff either. Uh, certainly when we try and compare this to other contaminants, and DDT we were talking about earlier, uh, nobody ever succeeded you know, with voluntary limitations on things. You had to eventually get to legislative controls or, or outright bans. Um, I think that, you know, certainly more education is valuable, Mm -hmm. important. Um, Is it the answer? No. Um, I think we've seen states now, New York, New Hampshire, Maine, Minnesota in particular, and I'm thinking about fishing gear, where the state agencies and the NGOs have spent 10 years of times building, in some cases like Minnesota, very sophisticated, well-integrated education projects. And I remember talking to Amanda Barry Bow, who was running the Minnesota program for much of the 10 years. 
and they did an evaluation at the end of 10 years, and they found distinct change in attitude among the anglers, no change in behavior. Yeah. You know, the same amount of lead was being used. Yeah. Um, the anglers knew more about it, but they weren't changing what they were doing. Right. Um, same sort of thing in New Hampshire, you know, which is probably the state that's had the second most effective program. Yeah. Um, in that... It's good for people to know. It's good for people to feel like they can do something voluntarily because a certain segment of population will. A certain yeah. number of people actually will go out and change their behavior. But it's not enough of a segment to make a difference, yeah. unfortunately. Um, you know, even in the states like New Hampshire, Minnesota hasn't gone to anything regulatory at this point. New Hampshire has regs in place, you know, at least on some sizes of fishing gear. They've been effectively ineffective right. at this point. They've, I mean, there's been a little blip in the curve. You know, we can show that it's had some effect, mm -hmm. but it's very marginal. Um, and if you think about the New England states, I know this may be foreign to some of the Westerners, the New England states are tiny. Yeah. You know, very few anglers fish in one state. And so you can, in one day, fish in Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire, and the regs are different in all three states. Mm. Are you going to change tackle boxes when you go from place A to place? I mean, there are, and there are literally lakes that cross the border where, between New Hampshire and Maine mm. where what's legal on the eastern shore is illegal on the western shore. Right. This makes no sense. Yeah. Um, we need something that's more uniform from from the angler's point of view, from the manufacturer's point of view, from the enforcement point of view. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that the existing regs have been so ineffective is that they are inconsistent in this region and that you know we live in a time of economic difficulties and all of the state fish and wildlife agencies are hard put to enforce all of the existing hunting and fishing regulations and so they have to make conscious or unconscious decisions about how much effort they put into this and this has just has not risen to the level yeah. of you know poaching or a lot of other kinds yeah. of important hunting and fishing kinds of things. I think, honestly, that we need really strong legislation. I mean, I think we need legislation, probably it's nationwide. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we again, from the point of view of fishing gear, we know the most about loons mm -hmm. because we've studied loons. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I've had, you know, this week a snapping turtle in with lead ingestion, a great mm -hmm. blue heron in with red... I mean, there's other things that eat fish. Yeah. They're undoubtedly ingesting lead and dying from it. Nobody's yeah. studying them. Yeah. Um, you know, the, probably the closest to that would be there's some data from wildlife rehabilitators in Florida about lead ingestion in brown pelicans, which is pretty high. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, nobody's looked at population-level effects or any of these kinds of right. things. Right. So, yeah. I was just at this this conference in Salt Lake City, the Outdoor Writers Association. Oh, I heard I heard some feedback. From yeah, that. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you know the the uh, was it the American Sport Fishing Association? I know them well, yeah. Gordon and yeah, Michael and, Gordon, and all the people down yeah, there. Yeah, and Gordon, you know, gave up and gave his, yep. his presentation about you know how it's impossible. There's no alternatives to lead for fishing That's sinkers. Such garbage. And that God. you know about how there are no population. Yeah level yeah um, the, the problem I have is he knows better he and I have talked on the phone dozens of times in fact Michael Nussbaum who's their vice president I think mm -hmm. spent a day up here he came up and he wanted to see all our data he wanted to you know and you know I showed him all the x-rays I showed him the stomach contents mm -hmm. and the things we'd taken out of the loom they know it mm -hmm. you know I've chatted at least one of the things I like about them is they're willing to have a conversation 
you know, NRA is not willing to have a conversation. I, yeah, and actually, yeah. I, I had this interesting experience. I took this trip to D.C. because I thought I was going to be able to get an interview. I, I actually set up an interview mm-hmm. with the president of the uh, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, and he bailed on me last minute. He walked out of his office as soon as he started hearing details about my project. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think part of that was a lack of communication between mm-hmm. the communications director who yeah. set up the interview for me and, and him. But the communications director, you know, came up to me and spoke to me afterward because he kind of wanted to apologize yeah. for, for what had happened. And, and he said the same thing. He said, if you want anyone to talk to you, you got to talk to the, the um, sport fishing people because, yeah. you know, they're not going to agree with you, but at least they'll talk to you yeah, about it. <laughs> absolutely true. No, that's been my experience. And, you know, it's interesting. When I talk to, I've spent some time visiting with some of the the manufacturers and the marketing folks and things. And when you get people quiet, you know, on their own in non-confrontational settings, many people, not all, but many will say, we know the handwriting is on the wall. We know lead has to go away. Um, But, you know, but I can't take that position for my organization at this point. Um, You know, to me... And I, when I'm talking to my students, I'll, I'll often say this. I put the fishing gear issues and the hunting gear issues in very different settings because basically for fishing, you need something that's going to sink a worm, you know, or something that's going to carry, you know, a lure out into the water. Um, it doesn't have to have any special properties other than some mass. Ballistics is different. You know, you put something in a firearm under those kinds of temperatures or pressures and things, and you can kill somebody if you do it wrong. Um, and, and so I think in many ways that's, that's a harder nut to crack. I mean, I think the Barnes bullet, the copper bullet, is mm-hmm. a wonderful advance there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure, you know, I know Department of Defense and NATO are all looking for good non-toxic substances. They don't want to use lead anymore mm-hmm. for a whole variety of reasons, and they put jillions of dollars into look you know they they thought it was going to be tungsten for a while mm-hmm. now that's not looking so good mm-hmm. um but fishing to me is easy i mean when my kids were little and i was taking them fishing on makes lakes in maine i got all my fishing sinkers at the hardware so i just go down and get hex nuts you know a steel hex nut you know not galvanized because you don't want the zinc that's mm-hmm. toxic too a steel hex nut's a great sinker you know cheap as dirt um easy to get on the line you know if you lose it so what? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of companies now that are manufacturing natural stone sinkers. You know, one is called Stones, S-T-O-N-Z, and the other one is Palatrax is the company. They work great. We have, there's a, a Native American tribe here in Massachusetts, the Wampanoags. Jim Miller is their uh, vice president for conservation. And they run a fishing derby every year. And for the past several years, they've agreed to have a non-lead fishing derby. You can only use stone sinkers in their fishing derby. And all the fishermen are still catching fish, and they're catching fish that are just as big Mm -hmm. as they were when they were using lead. Mm -hmm. And people were not complaining about it very much. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like rocket science to me. The fishing thing is easy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's it's wrapping people's minds around it. Yeah. Um, And I know when I've talked to some of the manufacturers and, and... they, Water Gremlin for years has made a non-toxic line of sinkers, Gremlin Green. Mm-hmm. And every time I talk to him, he says, but they don't sell. You know, nobody's buying them. And when I'm talking to him, I say, well, I know why. You know, because when I go to places that do sell Dick's Sporting Goods or L.L. Bean or places like that, there's no marketing effort. You know, they're mixed on the wall with everything else. Right. You know, 
we could market these things. Yeah. You know, we could have a little banner, non-toxic, doesn't yeah. harm the environment. You could, you know, and it wouldn't cost much. And I also think, and I've said this to a lot of NGOs, this is where I think groups like the state Audubon organizations and things like that, let's get into bed with industry. You know, if Water Gremlin will, you know, donate some sinkers or something like that, maybe we can make the educational thing. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, for every Dick's Sporting Goods, let's just have a little banner. Yeah, You know, sure. buy these, you know, yeah. and, and the Audubon societies can put those up. Yeah. I think that can be a win-win here. Yeah. Um, but we haven't quite gotten to that point yeah. yet. But I do think that the issue with the non-lead gear is more marketing and perception than anything else. You know, once we show that the stuff will catch fish, who cares? Um, I met, and this is five or six years ago, I met with the vice president from Bassmasters because I thought, this is the group we have to yeah, get. Yeah. Um, because I thought if we could get one of those TV personality, you know, bass fishermen to uh-huh. endorse non-lead fishing yeah, gear, it would go sure. a long way. And I, he was interested, but he took the idea to his board and it didn't, it didn't go. Right. But yeah, one of the things I wanted, and it sort of, it appealed to my ego. Mm-hmm. Um, he was saying to me that the Bassmasters has an annual convention and i guess that year was going to be at the super bowl Mm -hmm. and he said they get eighty thousand rabid bass fishermen to fill the super bowl and if you could just give them you know this kind of a message and have one of their you know their people come in there and catch bass using a stone sinker a tin sinker a steel sinker again it's not rocket science this stuff should be easier than this yeah you make a good point there which i think it you know is that these guys, they're not idiots. No, you know, not I mean, at they, They've got to understand, you know, watching some of these guys give their presentations and then the Q&A afterwards, mm-hmm. I mean, you can, just, you, can, you can just tell that they're not allowed to say what they're thinking. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. They, they've got a party line that they mm-hmm. have to, yeah. Well, and, you know, this is true not just in the, the marketing end of things, but I've got a friend who I won't name, but he works for a state agency in the Midwest. And after us, he's done necropsies on the second largest number of dead loons in North America. And so he's got data on, it's probably 1,500 dead loons at this point. His, his data are virtually identical to ours. And his agency won't let him publish it. They've, they've said to him, it's too controversial, you, you have to sit on it. You know? I've, see, I've got a copy of his data, yeah. you know, I could... Yeah. yeah, but I I can't I can't do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the larger perspective here? I mean, what 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 do we take away from this issue as a human population? You know, living in the same area where we're seeing these uh, effects on wildlife. Let me take a step backwards, okay? Because yeah. one of the things that's become popular to talk about um, in human occupational health and public health that hasn't, I think, entered this discussion yet. And I think one of the reasons that we fail with regulating lead is that so far, almost virtually all the efforts to regulate lead have been product-specific. It's lead paint, you know, and 20 years later it's, you know, lead in this or lead in children's toys or something like that. The problem isn't the product. The problem is the raw material. And I think that the way to look at this appropriately is the life cycle of lead. The whole thing needs to be regulated. As an example, um, the last big lead mines in this country have closed in the last 10 years because of increased OSHA regulations on miner safety and exposure in the workplace to lead. 
Um, so from digging it out of the ground to grinding up the rocks to smelting it to casting the products to selling the products, it's toxic at every step. Every step kills things in the environment. There is more literature about there on lead poisoning of wildlife in mines and smelters than there is on California condors ingesting lead stuff. And that's where you get at the human health end of things. It's the occupational piece. Workers you know, exposed in the factory or bring home lead dust on their clothes. Or, as in El Paso, Texas, um, impoverished communities living downwind from the smelter where children's lead levels were ten times higher than they ever were from lead paint. And so the issue to me has gotten broader than any one of these products. It's linking the whole life cycle thing together. Because what's happened in this country since we've closed down Doe Run and we've closed down Herculaneum and we've closed down the big lead mines, um, but, but we're still consuming more lead in this country than we were 20 years ago. Lots more lead than we were 20 years ago. What we've done is the big international companies that are no longer mining in this country are now mining in Nigeria and Peru and India, and they're poisoning people by the tens of thousands for us to use lead products in, in first world countries. Um, the number of lead products in this country has increased since 1975. <laughs> <laughs> really? Really. Think about this from the point of view of... Suppose you owned an international corporation that mined metals. Mm -hmm. Okay, your job is to produce greater quarterly profits for your shareholders mm -hmm. every year. And lead is always a big seller. It's been a big seller for three thousand years mm -hmm. or more. Um, and it's cheap to mine and it's cheap to produce because it's got a low melting point. And so, if you look at even the web pages of some of the manufacturers, they're always coming up with interesting new products. For, for instance, it was about two years ago, I guess, um, and this was in Europe. I don't think it's for sale in this country at this point. You know, wallboard, um, they started to in introduce a new brand of wallboard that was going to be specifically good for soundproofing offices because between the plaster layers there was a thin layer of lead to help cut sounds down. Okay? And you think about manufacturing mm -hmm. it, and you think about drilling holes in the wallboard to mount light fixtures or mm -hmm. pictures or anything else. And, and again, every wall is going to have to be you know, recycled or right. disposed of or go right. to landfill at some point. So right. there's the whole life cycle piece with this. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've been kind of looking at this from the perspective of exposure. Uh -huh. And most of the people I've talked to who have talked about sort of just like the history of land yeah. and regulation in this country, no one would say that we're close to solving the issue 100%, but, you know, everyone says, by getting rid of lead, you know, at least in most paints... And gasoline in, in was gasoline, the big thing. Yeah. You know, is, is the yeah. big one that everyone mm -hmm. says. Yeah. You know, we're just in a much better position than we were. We are. In the I mean, if you look at the average blood level in humans in this country now compared to the 1960s, it's dropped dramatically. I mean, we've made a big difference. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to Herb Silberg, um, Herb Needleman about that, you know, and, and he take takes great pride in it, as he should, but he's incredibly frustrated that we stopped at that. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you look at the CDC numbers, I mean, as we sit here today, roughly between 300,000 and 320,000 children in the U.S. are suffering from clinical lead poisoning. In the 21st century, how can this be? You know, and that's children. That's yeah. not bald eagles or California condors or loons. There's way too much lead out there, and we continue to use it in big numbers. 
All right, that was our archival interview with Dr. Mark Pocross, a veterinarian at the Tufts Wildlife Clinic and professor at the Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. You can hear towards the end of this interview how shocked I was to hear Mark say that the number of products containing lead has actually increased since the 1970s. This interview was truly a turning point for me in the development of my film, Scavenger Hunt. Mark made me realize for the first time how steep of a hill I was trying to climb by taking on the lead industry in my film. Mark continues to work at the Tufts Wildlife Clinic and continues to publish his research on the effects of lead poisoning on loons and other wildlife. If you'd like to hear an update from Mark on the progress that he's made in his research and advocacy work over the past five years, stay tuned. We will be talking with Mark again very soon, and we'll be releasing this new conversation right here on the Eyes on Conservation podcast in the coming months. In the meantime, you can head on over to the show notes page to learn more about Mark's research and the work being done at the Tufts Wildlife Clinic. You can also check out the short bonus video that we produced about Mark's loon research uh, that was included as an extra on the Scavenger Hunt DVD. This episode of the podcast was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.